kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Episode number 65 of the Love That Album podcast. Glad to have your company. Thanks so much for downloading and joining us. And guess what? Like I always say at the beginning of an episode, I'm excited. But I always say that whenever I have a new guest host on the show, and I have a first-timer to the podcast this time, first-time guest host, and it is a man who is the host of another podcast that I hugely admire, or rather the co-host, I should say of another podcast that I admire. The show is called Married with Clickers, and I have Scott Clickers on the other end of a Skype connection with me. Good, well, it's your afternoon, isn't it, to my morning, Scott. Hello. Morris, thank you so much for having me on. It is an absolute uh, thrill to be here. I am a huge fan of of your show. Love listening to it, and it's got me rethinking music completely, to tell you the truth. You know, I told you I went out and... uh, Bought a few albums just uh, based on some of the shows you've done. Oh wow, it's, it's a sign of a job well done. Now, for you know, for the couple of listeners out there who don't know, Married with Clickers, please give us a bit of a rundown of uh, the show, how it started, and what uh, what your aims are. You know, because I know there are quite a few film podcasts in our community, but tell us a little bit about Married with Clickers. Yeah, sure. So it is a uh, mostly weekly show, or at the very least, four times a month. Uh, show that I do with my wife, Kat. We're here in Toronto and, uh, really it was just an opportunity. I was listening to a lot of podcasts and said to her, you know, it'd be great for us to have some sort of hobby together. We've got busy lives, a couple of kids, but just to have some sort of focal fun point of our week. So I had to twist her, her arm a little bit, but, uh, yeah, we, we're having a lot of fun doing it. We cover just really typically one movie per episode and, uh, we alternate picks and it, it, the way it works out is we hit just about every era, every genre um, there is. So uh, yeah, that's something that's definitely something that I notice, and and I think in a way is um, unique about your show, at least unique amongst the shows that I listen to, because you know there'll be shows that will, will focus on the uh, uh, genre. There'll, there'll be you know people I guess will you know focus on the sci-fi and horror, or there'll be people who'll focus on uh, noir more recent mainstream comedy fair or art house and, and really you guys seem to cover all of that yeah I, I because i think neither of us have one preferred uh type of film we like them all and when it comes down to picking i put a lot of thought and effort i've got a long list of films i'd like to cover uh cat takes about 30 seconds uh, to choose hers so we both end up just picking really weird uh picks and it can be anything from a screwball comedy um to a slasher so when when you and Kat first met, I don't mean to sort of you know get all romantic on your ass or anything like that. But when you first met, was film a connecting point, and did you have common film interests? Uh, it was. We met in grad school, and um, we had a lot of free time on our hands. It seems so. I had a, uh, a 
solid VCR and a video store nearby. So we just ended up renting a lot of films. We lived in the city, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, here in Canada, mm -hmm. which didn't have a lot of theaters. So we did rely on um, watching stuff at home. Um, so, yeah, we, we ended up watching a lot of movies. And it turns out there's a lot of the same stuff. Uh, we liked. Um, she had her favorites. I had mine. But you know, we don't we don't hate anything the other one um, likes, which really doesn't lead to very uh, much, not, you know a whole lot of debate on our show. <laughs> so we we always joke that we tend to agree and give very high grades. But you know, say la vie. So can you out of like what one hundred and seventy five, one hundred and eighty shows or something like that? Has there been any program where where you said no? Nah, Cat, you're completely wrong. That film was a sack of shit. Or, or was there anything where you you gave it a you gave it an A, and she said, "No, nope, it's a D." Yeah, I don't. the The only one that really comes to mind, and she didn't even love it um that much. But I I kind of held back my thoughts until the very end. It was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, <laughs> which I just absolutely detest. I know some people just love it. And I watched it once ten plus years ago. Watched it again for our show, giving it as much. You know, benefit of the doubt as I could, and right. I, you know, she was making arguments for it, and I just at the end held back and just said, "I just hate this movie." <laughs> <laughs> it's a film I've been reluctant to watch. I, I was a big fan of the book, but uh, I, I had heard that it disappointed a lot of fans of, of his writing. Yeah, so I thought, you know, I, I'm a I'm a fan of Gilliam, but I thought, no, nope, if uh, the general consensus is that one's not worth the time of day, then you know, maybe I better just stick with my memories of the book. Yeah, but some people just absolutely adore it. But I, I just, I can't. I, I like, I like a lot of Gilliam movies, but some of them don't work for me at the same time. But the, yeah, then this is just one that just didn't work for me at all. Mm -hmm. it, but that was one of these ones where we, I think we disagreed, and she was very surprised because I think she had expected me to like it. Right. I may, maybe the longer you're married, the more you tend to agree. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm more happy to sit down to Planet of the Apes movies than she is, but she'll give everything a fair shake. If there was a film that you suspected that you weren't going to like, you wouldn't pick it, or would you pick something thinking, I think this will make an interesting conversation, even though I don't necessarily like it? Yeah, it's usually about the conversation for me. Well, anyway, it's been, um, it's been a firm favorite of mine in recent times. Uh, I think I first gave you a listen, I don't know, maybe it was a year and a half ago. And I don't know, for, for whatever reason, I wasn't ready for it at the time. And then I came back to it. And now, absolutely, it's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, when you guys sort of like, you put, you post a day or two late, I'm thinking, why is he late? I, I want my, I want my Mary clicker. So, and I, I loved your, um, your TIFF roundup of the last week. Yeah. You really realize just how many films are produced every year. There are great films that no one ever gets the chance to see. Never mind in theaters. They just never even get any form of DVD release. Right. But, you know, I thanks for the words. We, we have a lot of fun doing it and it's, it's, um, nice that people are listening. But I think even if no one did, it's just become sort of a, a fun hobby, um, for the two of us to share. That's, that's really, really wonderful. The, the two of you obviously sound so passionate, uh, about what you do. Uh, so, you know, that, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. You know, you guarantee that you're going to watch the movie together and you're going to get the chance to talk about it together. And so anyway, we're 11 and a half minutes into this and we haven't actually said what it is that we're going to be talking about this uh, show around. So we, uh, I can't remember how we came across the conversation, but basically we both agreed that I haven't covered any Neil Young on this program, 65 episodes in, and you can speak about Neil Young till the cows come home. So I figured, well, it was a, you know, it was a marriage made in heaven. So, um, we're going to be covering 
Neil Young's album from 1989 called Freedom. And I'm looking forward really, really much to uh, talk about this. There's so much that we can talk about this you know, from a historical perspective and from the content. So uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about this with you. Also, um, as usual, Eric Reanimator is back uh, with his album I Love segment. And he's uh, got a se- his segment, which we'll uh, introduce, well, well, I'll play for you in a minute, is uh, covering an album from a, a group that he's already covered on the show. Uh, once before, but I, I like what he has to say about them, and I like the music that he's introduced. The band is called Driving and Crying, and uh, he's going to be speaking about their album Whisper Tames the Lion from 1988, and uh, one of the members of that band, actually, uh, Kevin Kinney, uh, he's also done an album I love segment based on a couple of his solo albums, McDougal Blues and Down Outlaw. So uh, let's have a listen to what Eric has to say in his album I Love segment about Driving and Crying, and we'll be back in a few minutes to discuss Neil Young's freedom. You're listening to Love That Album. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for... An album I love with Eric Reanimator. A la dee dee, a one, two, three, Eric the Reanimator. Mystery Road in 1988. 
was at a point in their career where they sounded like this. So in other words, kind of driving, southern-flavored, hard rock, much in the vein of what Neil Young was kind of playing with and had been. The band was formed in Atlanta, Georgia. This was their second full-length album. This was a young band trying to find its footing. Back in 1988, people referred to this as college rock. It definitely had a bit of punk and a bit of metal, good dollop of uh, Leonard Skinner and Almond Brothers Band, that kind of sound in there. Uh, the lead singer, Kevin Kenny, is on record as a big fan of the Ramones, among others. So these were sounds that weren't being put together at the time, and this was a band that was doing it in what some might consider a regionally specific way. You know, Atlanta is right next to Athens, which was the epicenter of bands like R.E.M. and the B-52s. Driving a Crime was maybe the blue-collar version of that. I mean, I've also talked about lead singer Kevin Kenny's solo records previously on the show. They were definitely playing in that same wheelhouse with the socio-political messages and social concepts that were in the record. At the same time, with this driving hard rock, you would get these lovely, not quite ballads, but slower songs, maybe more country-flavored songs. Something like this. Who did? 
question is always is, why wasn't this band bigger? Yes, they had a couple of hits around 1990-91, right before Alternative hit. Why weren't they bigger? Why didn't they carry on? Why didn't they carry over? Why were they on the hard rock side of the fence? My understanding is that's their question too. Maybe part of it is that their follow-up album to their breakout record, Fly Me Courageous, the album called Smoke, was badly produced. The songs were too heavy and too um, too forced into a box in which they didn't belong when it came out. But, you know, this was a band that should have been played alongside of R.E.M. and Nirvana and U2, not relegated to the ranks of hair metal, basically, which is where their label had pigeonholed them. So I don't know how much more I can do to sell this band to everybody. They are one of my favorites. It's not just the hits. It's not just the harder rockin' tunes, although I love those. It's the soul. It's the bluegrass. It's the country. It's the southern rock. It's all of that, and it's cohesive, and it's together, and it deserves to be heard and rediscovered. So, Whisper Tames the Lion by Driving and Crying. Check it out. It's been Eric Reanimator. Talk to you all later. Hey, this is Scott of Married with Clickers. Tune in to hear my wife Kat and me discuss all sorts of movies. We'll cover everything from The Lost Weekend to Weekend at Bernie's. From The Big Sleep to Big Mama's House. Well, maybe not Big Mama's House. And the great thing about Kat is that she's not afraid to speak her mind. And would you be surprised to hear he was nominated for Best Actor that year? For that film? For that film. But don't take my word for it. Just listen to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema has to say about our show. It's a husband and wife show, and they discuss movies and stuff. Yeah, a very wife-husband show. High praise indeed. So come find us at marriedwithclickers.libsyn.com. It will save your life. Or maybe just help you kill an hour.
And we're back. Thanks very much, Eric, for another wonderful album I love segment. Uh, yep, that driving and crying, I still haven't gone and bought any of the CDs, but I've, I feel like I've heard enough through uh, his uh, couple of segments and the Kevin Kinney stuff to warrant going out and buying. That's a thing about his album I love segment. Unfortunately, um, between him and Tim Merrill, I've ended up uh, spending more money than I really should on new albums, but they've come up with some uh, killer recommendations. So, uh, yeah. that- you want to keep the music industry going, you got to actually drop some coin every now and then. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think over actually the last week or two, I think I've uh, done more than my fair share. So, uh, big sigh. But, you know, the kids just won't eat for a week. There's you know, just nothing else that can be done about it. Anyway, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Morris here in Melbourne. Scott Clickers, host, co-host of Married with Clickers over in Toronto. And we're here to uh, discuss, I don't know, would you call him the patriarch of uh, the Canadian music industry? We've called him many other things, like the godfather of grunge and all sorts of other things. But uh, Neil Young. Now he might just be the dirty old man. (laughs) Oh, no, he's not gone the way of uh, a lot of the English entertainers, has he? Surely not. I just, you know, he's probably, he, um, you know, he's just left, he and his wife have filed for divorce, Peggy. Oh, that's right. Yes, sorry. Oh. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, it's changed my entire worldview. No, but uh, you know, I don't. I, you would call him, I guess. Yeah, he's he's really a patriarch here. He's held in in very high esteem, and he moved around Canada so much uh, during his early years that I think most people have a parent who claimed to have gone to school with him at some point. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he's pretty big here. But I, I, was, I was just joking about that because you know he's left his wife, who was really the one anchor in his life for the last 35 or so years. He's renowned for just you know dropping bands and, and management and, and right. uh, tours, you know, at, at the drop of a hat. But uh, Peggy's been his one constant. Don't have much of a memory for detail, but I remember reading uh, the book Shaky that was written by Jimmy McDonough and uh, one thing that does stand out was yeah he'd sort of come in and then just sort of leave town for whichever from whichever musicians uh, for whatever reasons uh, that were only known to him so it's uh, yeah he's a lot of people in his wake I would say I mean I, I love his music uh, I, but I, after the more I learn about him especially after reading reading Shaggy the more I realize well I'm that he's not a part of my personal life mm-hmm so we're here to discuss his album from 1989 called Freedom. And you know, as I said before, it's really hard to believe that it's taken up until now that we've discussed Neil Young on the program. I mean, you know, come to think of it, you know, probably out of the major songwriters, probably you know, Bob Dylan is you know, the other one who I haven't been game to tackle until now. There was talk of it for a while, but um, I, I don't know, it, it's inevitable. I'll probably discuss him before too long. But here we are, episode 65, Neil Young, his album Freedom. So I guess the question that I have to ask you, Scott, what are your earliest recollections of his music? And what was your first Neil album? Okay, long though. I gotta, I'll try to get try to get through this pretty quickly. Uh, my, I'm born in 72, so the year of harvest, I, I guess. Uh, my parents were big classic rockers. You know, they were uh, right around 20 in the summer of love. Mm-hmm. All of that said, I grew up with tons of classic rock: Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, Zeppelin. But my father hated Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He had, you know, he had uh, he had a copy of Deja Vu, uh, the CSNY album, but that's about as far as he went. But that was my first uh, my first exposure was um, on uh, Helpless and the the Country Girl, I think Your Pretty Song on Deja Vu. Mm-hmm. And then my then when uh, videos were really launched, you know, he had videos from the Everybody's Rockin' um, the record that right. I don't know if you 
video, the video for Wandering. No, I, I didn't say, I, I mean, I, I've got the album, I've heard the album, but I haven't seen any of the clips from it. Video, it's very, very funny, it's a really fun video, it's a silly song, but um, it's a very silly video, but uh, it's terrific, and it was in heavy rotation, because back in 1983, most, you know, there were about 12 music videos, so they all got, you know, heavy, heavy rotation, so that was really it, but then I, I was in my high school years and really started uh, loving everything I heard of his, so I would go back and buy After the Gold Rush or On the Beach, all, all of that, um, but I would try the 80s stuff. I would try the landing on water, and that just wasn't clicking with me much as it was not for many, many people. And I recall in 1988, I was in high school when the This Notes for You um, controversy came up, and and he was getting back in the media quite a bit. And then um, he toured in the summer of 89, uh, a tour here in North America. It was called A Solo Acoustic Evening with Neil Young. And I worked at a summer camp, an overnight camp, uh, with some friends and uh, took a, a night off and went to see Neil live. And it was just harmonica, piano, guitar, just Neil Young lying back on the grass. Um, and that was about a month before uh, Freedom hit the store shelves. Uh, so it was just at the right time. I was in love with Neil, but waiting for something great, saw a great show, and boom, Freedom was out. Actually, our stories are not too dissimilar. Basically, you know, growing up, the uh, there was this girl who lived across the road from me. She wasn't the girl next door. She was the girl across the road. And she was always trying to convince me of Neil Young's greatness. And I always found it strange that given I was a fan of Bob Dylan and a fan of Tom Waits, that my objection to Neil was his voice. And really, I, I think my biggest regret was that, I think, was it 1985 or 1986, he uh, came to Australia and did a show that I know people are still talking about here uh, he played a set by himself acoustically. He then did a set with a band called the International Harvesters. So I'm presuming you know, folks like Ben Keith were in it. And then the last set he did was with Crazy Horse. So you got solo acoustic Neil, you got country Neil, and you got the rocking, sloppy, you know, crazy horse Neil. Uh, and to this day, I'm, I'm regretting, why was I not a fan? Why was I not a fan? And I think in 1988, yeah, like, you know, same with you. I happened to hear this notes for you and really, really loved it. But I still didn't go on an exploration of Neil because even I knew that, well, this was not necessarily what stylistically what Neil Young was known for. So I thought, right, it's a detour. It's just this uh, album that he's gone and put out, just his exploration. Uh, and then a work uh, mate went and handed over a copy of Freedom shortly after it came out and said to me, you're a music buff, you need to hear this album, I'm not taking no for an answer. Uh, Rob Camilleri, if you're listening, I'm giving you the shout out. And he, he loaned me Freedom and that was when I became hooked. So yeah, similar similar sort of story. And you know that was when I went to the back catalogue and you know discovered Harvest and discovered On the Beach and and Zuma and Tonight's the Night. I mean, was it a similar story with you? After that summer, did you sort of like go back through the entire back catalogue or selected albums or, or anything? I, I, actually, I'd had about eight or nine Neil albums before Freedom came out, but it was just in a really concentrated period, probably in you know eighty eighty eight even. Just in eighty eight, I went out and bought a ton of old records and and and. Uh, tapes um, so I'd only been a fan for maybe 12 to 18 months before freedom hit but I was really living and breathing Neil at the time you know right listen right. the sand on a daily basis I, I know like while I was doing a little bit of research for the show I've seen that this album 
was actually in some ways quite divisive for a variety of reasons. But I guess, you know, there, there were some people who thought that there was too much going on here. And it was, you know, it was so diverse. And there were, you know, some of the, you know, the album's critics were thinking that that was its weakness. And to me, that's always been its strength. And just like my friend Rob, uh, I would always say, right, if I'm trying to convince someone you need to get into Neil Young, this is the album I'd hand over because it has, it really is a good overview stylistically from a musical perspective of everything that Neil Young does. I mean, I know that he's gone to other places as well, sure, as the This Notes For You sessions attest to, but we've got you know, acoustic Neil, we've got grungy Neil, we've got something that's a little bit slick in its production, but not slick, but something that doesn't fit into either category, songwritery, Neil, whatever you want to call it. That's something that I like about its diversity, and yet it's still, in a strange way, seems cohesive, even though, if I recall correctly from the biography, that was certainly not its intention. And I know that there was an album, that, uh, not an album, an EP, that came out ahead of Freedom. I can't remember how far ahead, maybe six months or more, uh, called, uh, which was El Dorado, and it had about you know four songs or so that ended up on the Freedom album, and that was supposed to be like a you know, a little EP in its own right, and was not necessarily an, an indication of what was going to end up later on with Freedom. But I believe that was like Australia and Japan release only. Yeah, you're right, and I've never I've never seen a copy. Well, I, I remember actually seeing a copy uh, here at the time, but I wasn't necessarily sold on him, and if if I was, I would have definitely bought and i'm pretty sure that they fetch stupidly high prices on uh, ebay nowadays yeah sorry to interrupt to your point about the variety uh, of the music i think many of his great albums uh do have that so i you know i would question why a critic would come at it from that point of view you know whether it's an album like rest never sleeps which is essentially you know side a is is acoustic side b is is loud um or something like after the gold rush where it's sort of you know peppered back and forth um, there, a lot of his great stuff is all over the map. Zuma, Zuma is very similar as well. Right. Yeah. Look, no, that's that's a fair point. I just sort of suggest though that with freedom, the it almost sounds like even though I, I guess that wasn't his intention, but there were several sessions I think that went on with the album that sort of eventually became freedom. And I guess the differences. Maybe because of production, that they seem a lot more obvious, at least to me. I guess maybe the production on on albums like Zuma, it it, it doesn't seem as obvious to me on uh, albums like Tonight, The Night, and Zuma. Even though, yeah, there is some of that diversity. They still seem to sound, oh yeah, that's Neil doing what Neil does. But on on this record, the you know the the songs, and we'll get into them. But you know the songs that he does with Linda Ronstadt seem like him saying, right, I'm going to be deliberate in giving this ballad right after a something like on Broadway, which you know is real. I don't know if that was the start of the grunge movement or just Neil sort of experimenting and people following in his wake. It, it seems like deliberately more diverse than uh, some of those earlier albums do. I think uh, that's true. And then some of the songs, you know, I, I think it's partly due to the, some of the songs being brand new and some of them having almost been gestating with them for, for 20 plus years at the time. Mm-hmm. You are my special one Made my heart come all undone We've been having too much fun Now someone else will sleep
Another thing that I guess I found, I found interesting, and we're still sort of like, you know, haven't sort of started discussing about the album yet, and uh, I think we'll be a while on it, but just one thing I sort of wanted to more to say, like leading up to it, you've already gone and alluded to the fact that the 80s, he released a whole bunch of albums that didn't necessarily appeal to a whole heap of people and yet I found one thing that was interesting was after Neil went back to reprise or after he left David Geffen or rather I think David Geffen sort of didn't renew his contract was Geffen tried to sue Neil Young for not making what was a inverted commas typical Neil Young album and even though I guess for me some of those albums were not so much in the diversity on an album, but they were certainly, he was diverse between albums. So, I mean, you know, really, if you'd listened, had this had David Geffen never listened to Harvest and Tonight's the Night and Zuma, and even after that, you know, when he returned, you know, Are You Passionate is very different from Ragged Glory or Harvest Moon. I mean, really, there was no such thing as a typical Neil Young album. And with Freedom, he just decided that he was going to show that diversity amongst you know the various songs i'm coming back to that but it just seems so bizarre that you know geffen would use that as a valid excuse to try and sue neil for that it's just one of the, the you know the funniest things you'll ever hear to be sued for not being you <laughs> <laughs> And, 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 you know, for the critics that were maybe, you know, not, not heaping praise on this album because of its diversity, on the other hand, a lot of positive critics were saying, finally, we've got our Neil Young back, which is quite interesting to say because this is all over the place. Right, right. I know that he came to Australia, I think it might have been about the time where Freedom was uh, was very big. And I know that there were people who there were people who were enthralled and people who walked out because that was during the big feedback experimentation period. pretty sure it was about the time of freedom uh, right after he went on the tour that was i Ach, bet the well. first tour you got after that, that was the freedom slash ragged glory tour um that then the arkwell discs came out of right right so yeah I, he played at a, a venue here i'm not sure if it was the entertainment center or what became flinders park but you know, i met people who said oh all he was doing was you know, playing two minutes of song and 10 minutes of feedback and oh, i don't know I, I mean i guess that's the thing with neil young i'm not going to uh, give you your expectations we had that tour in 19, that tour hit here in 1990, about March of 90, I think. And that was the tour, I don't know if it was in Australia, but Sonic Youth opened for him that tour. Don't remember. So let's, let's do a little bit of talking about the music on the album itself. So one thing that just sort of like really sort of going through a lot of uh, the songs again, I've been listening to this album, I wouldn't say non-stop, but I've listened to it quite a few more times in recent uh, weeks. In preparation for the show and I would argue that uh, the album in a way as diverse as it is the unifying factor is you know the name freedom and it's almost like a concept album where the theme is freedom and you know not always necessarily in a complementary phase you know there are some things where it's more about selling the notion of freedom and uh, in, in uh, what was then um, uh, was it still, you know, Reagan's America or Bush's America? 
and, and you know, the whole notion of freedom was was a bit of a farce and it was false. Uh, so there, there's a lot of that. But then there are still some very sincere personal notions of freedom, and you know, we'll cover those in some of the songs. For me, I think that the centerpiece of the album is uh, the the second song on the album, "Crime in the City." Well, the cop made the showdown. He was sure he was right. song that I've uh, you know got strong feelings about both from a lyrical perspective and a musical perspective and I'd say like uh, another couple of songs on this album it's very cinematic both in you know its use of the lyrics and the music like lyrically every verse tells a story about the American dream gone wrong and another songwriter who I really really love who takes that every verse has a story uh, well, and actually, come to think of it, it's about the American dream gone wrong. Is uh, Gillian Welsh and David Rawlings on their song "The Way That It Goes"? Mickey Johnson about the farm, put a needle in her arm. That's the way that it goes. That's the way. And her brother laid it down in the cold Kentucky ground. That's the way that it goes. That's the way. That's the way. It goes. Everybody's buying little baby clothes. That's the way that it is. Though there was a time when she and I. Just telling a story in song doesn't necessarily make the song cinematic, but it seems that. Neil is definitely using some film-like tropes and telling the story of, you know, the cop uh, surrounding his best friend's house in a showdown, uh, you know, which is captured on the TV news, or another cop who's uh, tired of following the rule book and finds that it's more profitable to keep the peace his way, you know, by getting paid off by the crooks. And the American and indeed Western world ideal of freedom is a notion that's uh, somewhat removed from this, but it represents something for this character. Uh, he's lost his faith in hierarchies to keep societal laws, but while he's a target from criminals and he takes orders from fools, he's not truly free. He justifies taking bribes because you know his superiors need not know, and you know he has the illusion that crime is lessened, or rather, they have the illusion that crime's lessened. He knows that there's still crime in the city, but he's brought this definition of freedom, and his conscience lives with it very, very clearly. And it just sort of seems like it's very, very film noir to me. And Morris, the one word I first wrote down when thinking of this song was cinematic, so I think we're on the same page here. Right, right. You know, and the way it sort of rolls along brings to mind uh, some of sort of mid-70s Dylan as well. 
It's got sort of a, a hurricane type vibe, but in, in the sense of the the notion of freedom, you know, I totally agree. It's there, and uh, it it's just terrific the way it, it rolls along, and and you're getting that you know '80s cop movie feel where you know crack has really come into the inner city. Uh, the, the, yeah, the line like I get paid by a ten year old. It's, it's just terrific, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's not what you expect from a Neil Young song necessarily. And it's unlike anything else I've ever heard from him. To tell you the truth, on this album, he's pretty. He's pretty angry. He's pretty pissed off. Because uh, yeah. wasn't he uh, like a initially a supporter of Reagan in the early eighties? He was, and he was. It was very controversial at the time because not, not you know no one amongst his peers would have been feeling like that. But I think uh, when Hawks and Doves was released, he was really backing Reagan and and you know really against Jimmy Carter. Right. Uh, this is as much a disillusionment of uh, his dream as it would be of. Uh, the American dream. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I feel he feels ripped off on behalf of himself and on behalf of, of the citizens. It's a great point that you make about this sort of having a, a parallel to Hurricane. I hadn't actually thought about it, but now that you mention it, this song could have really easily fit on uh, Dylan's Desire album if it had been a, a, a Dylan-composed song. Absolutely. The music sounds like it belongs in some 80s crime film set in uh, Los Angeles or Florida or somewhere like that. It's uh, you know heavily propelled by you know Neil's acoustic guitar, and, and you've got this beautifully played brushes or, or on the snare from... Uh, the drummer Chad Cromwell and that breathy saxophone that you get if it had been played a little bit too much more over the top it would have been just way too cheesy but it's played just enough and it still sounds like it fits in some 80s uh, Los Angeles crime film. Yeah, it makes me this 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 song always makes me think of the film Colors, the Dennis Hopper film Colors. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen it. That's you know another one of those list of shamers. Sean Penn with Robert Duvall, and Sean Penn is the wide-eyed cop, and you know I can just see this being on the soundtrack. For all the diversity that we hear on this album, there's one thing that's sticking out like a sore thumb, or rather, that's sticking out from its absence, and that's Crazy Horse. Okay, I guess there's you know there's no um, nothing in here that sounds like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young either. But that was never really Neil's project, so I'm not going to you know sort of count that. But you know we've already gone and mentioned that we both had you know read uh, Jimmy McDonough's album Shaky, and I'm struggling to remember many of the details. But Neil obviously you know followed his own muse, and you know, we've already sort of gone and followed that he came in and then walked out again in the middle of the night, and Crazy Horse were often left stranded, and then he'd sort of reappear, and I. I guess, you know, like you know, it's often been said, you know, Crazy Horse was his E Street band, but Bruce sort of, he's been with the E Street band, or, well, what he calls the E Street band, since, uh, I guess, the late 90s, you know, they've sort of been reformed, but, you know, Neil just sort of keeps going and coming with Crazy Horse. And Freedom has what I call a great Crazy Horse tribute band. It, uh, uh, Rick Rosas on bass and Chad Cromwell on drums. And most of the songs that they do, uh, with the exception of the title track, sound really raw and brutal like Crazy Horse, but not sloppy and garage like the horse. And when I say sloppy, I don't mean that as a bad thing. I mean that as the highest praise indeed. You know, it's not meant to be disparaging. Everyone knows that, you know, the Crazy Horse are the greatest garage band in, in the world. They are loud and brutal. Uh, you just got to listen to Live Rust or Arkwell to prove that. Rosas and, and Cromwell and Young play with that brutality, but it sounds tight. And you know, that's not meant to be derogatory or praiseworthy. It just 
he just is. It, but it, it's meant to sound a little bit like the horse. But I guess maybe because you know you've got Chad Cromwell who plays exceptionally tight on the songs that he's on, on Rockin' in the Free World and, and on Broadway. That it, it just, oh, I'm not making much sense. But the musos out there will probably get the idea. I know what you mean. And if you do, you know, if you know a bit about Neil, you'll know he'll even say that about Crazy Horse. Like this, these songs just weren't a good fit for them. Or he will say they're not good enough for this one but there's yeah. but there's but the thing you know that they those songs really could have fitted in with uh, the crazy horse i think and, and really i mean when you listen to ark well really he's redoing rocking in the free world and, and and others on that album from freedom and they do work but for whatever it was for just i don't feel like working with those guys for the moment although frank san pedro actually does appear on this album so who knows one song isn't he He's on a couple of songs, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, actually, I think he ends up on uh, "Rockin' in the Free World" on the electric version. two others um so neil had a very iconic saturday night live appearance right around this time where he played rock in the free world on on the show mm -hmm. and it was tremendous but i think that even that performance was a band he put together for the night they played unbelievably well and they never got back together so strange <laughs> who did thunk i mean for a while there he was playing with uh, booker t and the mgs nothing says memphis soul like neil young <laughs> That's the thing, it didn't sound like Booker T and the MGs, it, and it didn't sound like classic what you associate that sound with, and they were the house band for the uh, Bob Dylan 30th anniversary show, and I, I don't know whether uh, Neil sort of like heard them there and said, hey, you guys can keep touring with me, but yeah, very, very strange. We, okay, so I've already gone and mentioned by name on Broadway, and that to me is the perfect example on this uh, of what this trio that he put together could actually achieve doesn't sound anything like the Platters version and it doesn't sound anything like George Ber Benson which are really the two sort of iconic versions uh, of this song their respective versions of the song 
have uh, what I think are more like a, a level of uh, wistfulness. Uh, and both are brilliant, but uh, ironically, I think Neil's brutal interpretation of the music really helps put the lyrics very front and center. Yeah, it, it's pretty cool that you can you know take an old charming song like that and and make it contemporary um, in this way. And you know, New York is not not what it was whenever um, you know Benny King was singing about it. Um, and so it's nice to it's really cool that he can turn this on its ear and you know make it about you know the, the seedier side of New York and uh, and uh, you know it really stood out for me at the time and it, it still I think it holds up very well I love it I love it I, I listen to this and I think wow it's almost like it was written for Neil to do this um, yeah and it really I mean look I I still love the other versions but for me this what Neil does here. Uh, he just sing, brings out something in the song that think, wow, I, I can't hear it any other way. It's, it's absolutely brutal. But it was a product of his time. He couldn't have done this, I don't think, you know, 15 years early. Once again, this was a product of the Reagan and Bush era. I'm going to make a bit of a slight digression before coming back to talking a bit more about the song. In the 90s, I don't know if you remember this, Scott, but, you know, tribute albums seemed to be all the rage. And many of them were, well, I'll, I'll be kind, was to say were a bit shitty. But there was one tribute album that I really, really loved, and it was dedicated to the songwriter Doc Pomus. I think it was called Till the Night is Young, and, you know, Doc Pomus, you know, had written a stack of songs that we all know and love, but a lot of people don't necessarily know him by name, but really, as a songwriter, he was in the same league as Carole King and Jerry Goffin or Lieber and Stoller, but one song that he'd written that I previously hated, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show, I probably have, I've certainly gone and told a lot of uh, music-loving friends, but one song of his that I hated was is, um, Viva Las Vegas, Elvis Presley's version. It was uh, glitzy and cheesy and vacuous. And on this tribute to Doc Pomus, Sean Colvin takes that same song and plays it for full melancholic effect. down and it has a mournful harmonica that makes it sound like it's being played around a campfire somewhere in the desert you know this gambler who's barely got the shirt on her back uh, and when she sings Viva Las Vegas it, it's it's not sincere she's saying yeah you know really full of sarcasm and it's you know it's a condemnation of a gambling town not a celebration like the Elvis Presley version and all of a sudden when I hear her version of the song and I think oh this is how it's supposed to be done all of a sudden I love the song but only in her hands and I come back to Neil's on Broadway which I did love the earlier versions but He's gone and taken this song. Sometimes it's not the song, it's in the arrangement. It's what you do with it. And he's gone and presented a, a really, really dark side that the versions that we know and love from before didn't necessarily evoke. Um, and so like he had, he feels a need to add something at the end of the song, you know, sing, uh, yelling out, give me some of that crack. And this is definitely an update for the late 80s America. Yeah, yeah. 
sort of feeling like I've been hogging this. So, you know, Scott, tell me about some of what really strikes you about the album. What What are your favorite songs? Yeah, well, you know, a, a couple I'll talk about. Obviously, you know, let's talk about Rock in the Free World a little bit. Sleeping in their shoes But there's a warning sign On the road ahead There's a lot of people saying We'd be better off dead Don't feel like Satan But I am to them So I try to forget it any way I can Keep on rocking in the free world Keep on rocking in the free world uh, this song has just, it's become huge. It's played at hockey arenas everywhere you wouldn't know. <laughs> you know, it's played at sporting events all over North America. Right. It's, it's one of these, you know, it, it, it's it's terrific in the sense that, you know, he does the acoustic. He starts off with the acoustic version, ends up with this heavier version. He's done something, you know, similar things on Rust Never Sleeps. Right. Even tonight's, tonight's The Night has the two slightly different versions of the song, uh, of the title song there. So I always like it when he does that with it. And, and to me, the strength of the song is a lot of what I think the average listener, and this isn't to put people down, but I, I really do listen to lyrics and not everyone does, is just the, the turn of the phrases. And he, he takes a lot of the language from, I think it's, uh, it was either George Bush's inauguration speech or a State of the Union address, the whole thousand points of lights thing, and how he just plays around with that. To me, it's just brilliant. And there are sort of three songs from the 80s that I generally see uh, as being misunderstood by people. One, obviously, Bruce Springsteen's uh, Born in the USA. I've got a note about that, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think uh, John Mellencamp's Pink Houses is very similar. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll paint that America. Mm-hmm. And this as well. So these are three songs from the 80s I really feel are just do a great job of, um, they're just, you know, loaded with irony. Uh, they do a great sort of satirizing what America is in the 80s. Uh, uh, you know what, in a way... I don't want to say I blame Springsteen, but I mean, I guess, you know, he probably sort of thinks, right, well, the lyrics there, people will listen to the story and they'll know exactly where I'm coming from. But the whole thing about Born in the USA was he had, he played it in these big stadium arenas and he had the big American flag behind him and he wore the headband and he thumped his fist in the air. And really, I mean, I I guess the average listener is more about the music and rather than sort of focusing on the lyrics so and he to tell the truth he didn't realize that i don't know i mean i I, i'm all for music and lyric contradicting each other like you know you've got a a dark lyric to a sweet melody but this sounded way too stadium and he knew fairly early on that uh that people were um, you know, thumping their fists in the air and going, shit, yeah, born in the USA! And, and he um, he didn't sort of turn around in the start and say, oh, hang on, wait a minute, guys, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Whereas I don't think, even though Rockin' in the Free World has been appropriated to sound more... You know, it, the irony has been taken away from a lot of people who listen to it, but I don't think Neil ever presented it as anything but a song about his disillusionment with uh, the American dream or, or with... Yeah with uh, the, the Bush-Reagan era. So, yeah, th- there is that comparison between him and Springsteen, and yet I see differences too. No, I, I agree. You can, 
you're always in danger of sort of losing control of the message of your your music, especially in the way you present it, in in the way other people choose to use it. But I, you know, I, I just like these these songs that are, are fairly two faced from the '80s. They have different sides to them, but of course, a lot of people obviously don't understand them. It's good. I mean, it's to to a degree, it's been overplayed here in Canada. It gets a lot of play, and other songs are sort of left off the radio. And, and the other one I really sort of wanted to bring up, just it ties into our you know cinematic conversation, is the song El Dorado. It, like we were saying with Crime in the City, I fi- find El Dorado to be unlike any other Neil Young song I've ever heard. It, it's very cinematic. You know, it kind of starts off like a spaghetti western almost. Yes, yes. And then it sort of changes into almost, well, it, what he didn't make movies at the time, but it almost seems like a Robert Rodriguez kind of Mexican gangster movie by the end of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I love it. I love the different styles of music in there. Um, I like... How it sounds so Spanish at the start, and then just that that crunchy, crunchy guitar kicks in. And I remember the first time I heard that song, that note really got my attention, and I still wait to hear it every single time. Uh, and I just love it. I just love that song. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned that because I'd sort of gone and made a point that in that song, I think he's basically using the same band on that song as he is with uh, Rockin' in the Free World. Oh, well, hang on, no, no, sorry, with, with uh, On Broadway and uh, Don't Cry. All three of those songs, what they have in common, is like that note that you mentioned. It's more predominant i guess in on broadway more sustained in on broadway and don't cry but you get that that note that you're talking about i've gone and written down is it's an explosion of violence so you're, you're waiting you're listening to the song and then this just comes out of nowhere and like a like a great film or like watching the sopranos or something like that there's that menace that's bubbling underneath the surface and then that note with all that feedback just comes in and you're shocked out of your seat and once again the cinematic thing kicks in because you're watching something or in this case you're listening to something and then boom someone gets his head blown off and um that this is the oral equivalent and i always you know you always hear about neil young just sitting in the studio just stacking amps in different configurations <laughs> trying to find whatever like stomach churning note he's looking for and i feel like he found what he wanted with this one. Oh yeah so any any other favorites on the album i'm a really big linda ronstadt fan so i was, I was you know really happy to hear her voice on here um i think the song um someday is one of his his nicest songs of the era Someday we 
Um, you know, it's it's a bit all over the place, but it's always sat well with me. I know not everyone's a huge fan, but it's just some, it has some of his nicest lyrics and some of his nicest um, uh, melody uh, as well. So I'm, I'm a pretty fan of that one. You know, I'm I'm with you. I I know that you know when I was reading up some other reviews of the album, and generally that one and strangely enough, Wrecking Ball were considered two of the weakest songs on the album. And I thought, you know, to me, there's no dud on the album, and yet I can see that you know someday has a different feel to um, the rest of the album. Someday might have been in a way an offshoot of this notes for you. You got the uh, you've got the the horn section and. Uh, I mean, it doesn't sort of have that Memphis soul feel, but, you know, you've got that slightly soulful horn section there. But just, yeah, no, look, it's, it's a, it is a song that I really do appreciate. I, I don't know, I think some, some folks sort of found it a little bit corny, maybe because of that solo saxophone thing at the end and the, the chain gang. It is, the chain gang stuff, it's all a bit corny, but for some reason I've always just found it really, really nice and a very, you know, very uh, bittersweet uh, little song. Right, maybe because it doesn't have the rawness of uh, some of the other songs, but no, I'm with you. I love it. And then, yeah, I'd like to chat with you about Wrecking Ball a bit. I, I hadn't heard that. Uh, you know, some people weren't uh, too keen about it. My life's an open book. You read it on the radio. We got no. Maybe part of that argument is, um, you know, when Emmy Lou uh, covered it for her Wrecking Ball album, mm-hmm. you know, that would be one of the few times I've ever, you know, I could argue that I've ever heard anyone improve upon, you know, one of Neil Young's songs. I see your She completely did it justice. Yep. Daniel Lenoir can do no, you know, nothing wrong in my books. But oh, uh, man, he took uh, Emmy Lou Harris and he took Bob Dylan and, and Willie Nelson and just made vintage albums with all three. Yep. So you know, maybe it's by by you know virtue of the fact that now we have Emmy Lou's version. So maybe people think Neil's version pales in comparison, but it's it's still just a gorgeous, gorgeous song. I'm completely with you, and. I mean, I like the fact that this song, like, oh, well, well, we'll come back to it in um, in a minute, uh, one of the songs that he does with Linda Ronstadt, but I like the fact that you know, Wrecking Ball and later on, you know, we'll talk about Hanging on a Limb, uses the metaphor of dancing as uh, an allusion to making a relationship that's you know, potentially on the rocks. 
actually sort of come out and work. I'd you know, read something that someone suggested it, it had drug illusions, and I think, well, maybe I'm too naive to have uh, picked up on that, but I, I don't see it in that way at all. But I just sort of see it as this lovely song about, well, you know, the relationship isn't quite working, but, well, let's dance and see where things take us. One thing that I really like about this is it has Neil on piano. I mean, you know, look, he's, I don't think he's any necessarily great shakes as... Uh, no Neil Young jokes intended, but I don't think he's necessarily any great shakes as a pianist. But I love it when he does do something on the piano. And I've always loved his song Philadelphia. I've got my friends in the world. I had my friends when we were boys and girls. And the secrets came. He got cheated at the Academy Awards. It's I like the Bruce Streets of Philadelphia song, but this is better. Um, just, and there's something about what he does on the piano, maybe because he's not like a, a hugely accomplished pianist, but he knows enough to just sort of bring out, uh, I don't know, whatever the melancholy in the song or just bring out the real emotion in it. And really just listening to Wrecking Ball, it just sounds so sad and wistful that it, I can't understand why anyone wouldn't like it, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, I, I think of it. Uh, to emotional I think he you're right he's a very emotional piano player mm. his notes his notes may not be perfect but they do strike a chord pardon the pun um, but yeah it, it's he's terrific I, I've always loved it when he, he pairs back he just comes out with the piano on stage um, it's just it's always really really lovely and, and filled with melancholy often okay so I just mentioned before uh, one of the songs he sings with uh, Linda Ronstadt on this album which is uh, hanging on a limb. So the river flowed gently to the sea. He was on the shore, rooted like a tree. She was here and there, riding on the waves. Through it all, she heard his call and gave it all. And, you know, as I said before, you know, this is also a song about using dance as an opportunity to uh, mend a broken relationship. And I think, for me, this is just about one of the most beautiful songs in his entire back catalogue. And I think it's placed absolutely perfectly in where it goes on the album. Sequencing, I think, is a big deal here in album. We've already sort of gone through the anger of the first three songs on the album, and in particular the previous song, Don't Cry. You know, you're, you're left shell-shocked, and all of a sudden, like, you're going to hear, all right, he's going to come out with this acoustic guitar song, and it's very, very beautiful. He says, right, for a few minutes, I'm not going to bash you over the head, and I'm going to just sort of bring out a beautiful human side to the themes on this album. He sets up the lyric with how things aren't great, and then he ends up, with, you know, with that with that line and though their love was hanging on a limb she taught him how to dance she 
he doesn't say, and though things weren't going great, she'd give him another chance, or though things weren't great, they decided that they'd mend their relationship. Is using that metaphor, she taught him how to dance. I just love that line. It's it's simple, it's but it's beautiful, and you get what he's saying. It's funny. It's I think there's a bit of the stubbornness of man in this song as well. The image of him standing on the shore rooted like a tree. Together, you know, you really do actually need to come together and to try to make your relationship work. Right, basically, you know, the, between between her where she may be so like all over the place and he's just immovable, they found a way how to dance. They found a way how to move together. And once again, there's a lovely line there which once again comes in with theme of the album there was something about in the end he still has to move on because there was something about freedom he thought he didn't know so it's not neil saying right well you know he had to move on because he couldn't stay with this woman and it's adventurous and romantic that he feels he has to move on i think that's an acknowledgement of the male character's fallibility yeah, and I, I think this is what comes from writing songs as a 40-something rather than a 20-something, you know. Um, it's a lot less fantastical than his, some of his earlier stuff. It's it's maybe a bit more sad, but just a bit more realistic and pragmatic, too. Yes, yes, very much. One obvious theme that we sort of haven't actually discussed yet uh, that's very predominant on this album, and you'd say, well, how unusual for a Neil Young album, but drugs, they're all over this uh, album, but... Uh, I guess a lot of these songs are cousins to uh, Needle and the Damage Done. I mean, uh, Tonight's the Night was a very depressing album, and you know he speaks about you know the loss of roadies and friends. I mean, a lot of them are, uh, are tragic, and yet there are moments here, uh, like in um, Too Far Gone, right? No more. says right well that's it I'm, I'm i'm having a hard time of it but i'm, I'm gonna make a try of it of giving up but you sort of almost got to wonder whether he's trying to convince himself it, it, it does seem like that and his you know i don't think his drug use was ever at the levels it, it was for a lot of his compatriots but it was significant you know enough that it impacted his personal and professional life for sure and i, I think those are two very good songs no more and too far gone. These are, you know, very different in terms of uh, of their overall sound, but but the message is fairly similar. And it's it's about you know man coming to grips um, with the impact drugs may or may not have had on his life, and it's done in a much more subtle way. You know, I think in the '80s and especially with that terrible, there was a terrible CSNY album from around this era too that he participated. In. You know, all about this hippie dream stuff coming to an end and all of that. 
you know, it's not being that on the nose with these ones. It's much more personal uh, and much more confessional. And I, you know, I really love, I really like those songs. And, and both of these songs also come under the theme of freedom. Once again, I still, I'm going to go with this, run with this thing about it being a concept album. You know, we have the freedom to choose how we live our life. But at the risk of sounding cliched, that personal freedom comes at the cost, be it for our health or how we take liberties with others' sense of freedom. And I really think that on these songs, and that's what Neil is going for overall on this album. So, look, any final thoughts about uh, about the record or about Neil in general, Scott, that you wanted to bring up? Well, you know, it, it is a funny album because I think Neil Young fans, would, you know, really like it. And, and I think you were saying this is one you'd put in front of people for maybe their, their first taste. And, and I think I, I could see that. But to a certain degree, I think knowing sort of where he came from and where he was going with sort of the ragged glory and returned, you know, or the kickoff of the grunge years. Yep. This, this is just as is important to a diehard Neil Young fan, I think, because it's it's after you know after the '80s, he basically had he's basically gone through ten years of giving people the finger. <laughs> but I, I think it was a symbiotic relationship. You know, he basically said, "I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want," and it, you know, if you don't like it, screw you. But to the same degree, his fan base, you know, there's a scene in Spinal Tap where they're playing a jazz odyssey at this park. And there's just a fan in the front row just doing a thumbs down to the band the entire time. That's what I feel like Neil Young's fans were doing all through the 80s, you know. Right. He's giving the finger, they're all giving the thumbs down. It just wasn't working. But finally, everyone forgave each other with freedom, and that was great. And then, you know, Ragged Glory gave the grungy people what they wanted, and Harvest Moon gave the Harvest people what they wanted, and we're all good to go for, you know. All of the goodwill was back. You sort of got to wonder whether there was such a thing as a, inverted commas, typical Neil Young fan, because, hell, I mean, I'd go out and buy Harvest Moon, and then I'd go out and buy Sleeps With Angels, and, you know, for me, it was all about what's the song like, rather than, oh, I only want Country Neil, or I only want Grungy Neil. You know, for me, I'm just as happy to listen to Mirrorball as I am to listen to Harvest Moon. Well, I think for, you know, like, like, like a lot of ours who had, you know, long careers, you know, I look at Dylan as well. You know, there's a song to fit your mood. You yes. know, I will, when I'm feeling very, you know, you know, melancholy, I will listen to, you know, maybe Cowgirl in the Sand. When I'm out for a run, I'm the Ocean is my number one song on my running playlist. There's a song for everyone out there. And uh, that in this album probably gets you a taste of each of the potential Neil Youngs there are. Which is why I say this is the album that I would put in front of a new Neil Young fan. And ostensibly, even though I was already a fan of This Notes For You, this is where I consider my fandom of his music uh, really starting. This is the album that made me want to search out other stuff. It's it's a, like a sampler, but it's all new material, if you will. So yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm you know, and, and it's not every rock and roll artist that was putting out albums like this about to turn 45 years old, you know. Right, right. He just kept going. And look, the thing is, regardless of whether you liked his experiments at any time in his career, regardless of whether it's you know continuous feedback or uh, recording in a phone booth as he's recently done, you have to admire him for not for, well for wanting to be more than just a legacy act doing uh, the greatest hits thing. Yeah, and that's what it. Like last time I saw him, Cat and I went maybe last year, two years ago. Um, it was he did this like twenty minute version of Can I Swear on Your Show? Uh, please, I encourage it. It a like twenty minute version of Fucking Up. Why do I keep fucking up? 
just him, him and Poncho just yelling at each other for 20 minutes. Oh, man. It drove me nuts. It shook a lot of the Neil Young fan out of me, you know. So <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. And he even pissed me off, which is he's got to do a lot. So you didn't, you didn't care for a 20-minute version of fucking up? I did not. And I, <laughs> And I've come around to becoming a trans fan too, so there you go. Oh, Wayne, yeah, you are a true Neil Young fan. Anyway, so look, there's there's our conversation about uh, Neil Young. For all you listeners out there, Scott and I were actually planning on covering a second album this show, but I think, you know, at the risk of having this show run two and a half to three hours, we're going to save that for another time. Thank you so much for uh, having that chat with me because it's been great. I would have thought like it would have been easy to find someone to talk with about Neil Young, but really, you've been the first person who's come along who uh, who said, no, I'd really love to do that. No, I, I thank you so much for having me. It was great to uh, revisit all of these songs again. Um, yeah, and if you ever decide there's going to be more uh, more Neil on Love That Album, I'd be happy to participate. I think it's inevitable, and considering, once again, we use that word a lot, diversity of Neil Young, it's almost inevitable that we'll cover Neil again. But I think I've got to have you back on the show to cover the album that we were going to do, uh, the second album that we were going to do this time around. So I think that'll have to happen sooner rather than later. Ready, willing, and able. Fantastic. We've both got we've both got our notes, so they're um, they're sitting here waiting. So I guess I should talk a little bit about what we're going to be covering on the next program. And actually, I probably should also give a couple of shout outs that I want to do. Okay, so next time around, we're going to be uh, having on the show, and this is actually only decided. Uh, well, okay, the, uh, the the show had been decided for like quite a fair way back. Uh, a work colleague who's also a music nut, David Blom, makes his uh, return appearance to the show, and he told me a while back that he wanted to cover an album from a Britpop band who I'd never heard of called Manson, M-A-N-S-U-N. And it's strange that I haven't heard of them because apparently back in the day, their album called Attack of the Grey Lantern was a number one album in England. But for some reason, they've been left as a footnote. They're not like remembered like Oasis or, or Blur are. But um, their album became a number one album in England, certainly anyway. So, but they're a bit of an obscurity to me. Not that I during the, a lot of the '90s, I was like listening to a lot of uh, blues and, and jazz artists. So I guess um, you know, really, even a lot of the artists that other people who were listening to rock in the '90s take for granted. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I still haven't heard. But anyway, so we're going to be discussing Attack of the Grey Lantern with uh, my good friend Dave Blom, and I've gone and invited only in the last. 24 hours, a couple of good friends of ours. Got, I'm going to be inviting the crew of the Stinking Paws podcast onto the show. We're going to be talking uh, some Manson. Now, I went and had this conversation with Scott of Stinking Paws, and he said, Charlie's been dying to come on Love That Album. I said, well, I'll have you both on. Can you talk about Britpop? And he said, Charlie will talk about anything. He said, and yeah, I'm familiar with the album, so I've invited them on, and we'll be talking about Manson on the next program so the stinking pause and I, I believe that they're going to be making an appearance on uh, Married with Clickers while you guys are doing October stuff. Yeah we're all we're looking to get um, some uh, folks to fill in uh, during October we're taking a family vacation to uh, Los Angeles uh, so mm-hmm. we try to get a lot of shows in during October usually short horror movie reviews but uh, then we're leaving town so it's not really going to work unless we get some help this year right oh well much much success I hope that you, you get enough volunteers how long are your shows to, are supposed to be going for how long do you want 
the, these short horror movie ones, you know, we do them 25 to 30 minutes generally. Right. Well, anyone uh, who's listening out there, get in contact with Scott. If uh, you think that you'd like to talk for uh, 20 to 30 minutes about a favorite horror film, then um, I'm sure Scott would be uh, all too happy to have you uh, take over Married with Clickers. Uh, don't have to be married. Don't even have to have clickers. No. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, next month. Uh, we'll be uh, having Dave and uh, the Stinking Paws crew. If you haven't listened to uh, Stinking Paws, that's P-A-U-S-E. But yes, it is supposed to be a pun on the get your filthy hands off your stinking... Oh, there I go, filthy hands. Get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. Uh, they're a, a wonderful podcast that both Scott Clickers and I have been uh, fans of over the last yep. uh, year or so. Uh, they're, um, they're, they've got a very casual approach, just really, really hugely enjoyable. These are guys who, uh, they love their film and they're so friendly. And the thing I, the podcasts that I admire the most are the ones where you sound like you're in the room having a beer with them. And these guys definitely fit that bill. I just love listening. I, I, think, I, I feel like I want to interject. I think, oh no, it's just a just a podcast. They can't hear me. But um, yeah, very, very friendly. And I, I just love listening to what they have to say. So I'm looking forward to having them on the show in October. So yeah, check out Stinking Paws, P-A-U-S-E, if you have not already done so. And another show that I want to give a shout out to, well, I'm hoping by the time that this goes to where they'll have put their second episode up, but it's called The Second Spin. It's another music discussion podcast, another album discussion podcast, also based in Melbourne. And these guys basically taking albums that, that might have fallen away from your attention. Mainstream artists, so the first episode they spoke about Judas Priest's Turbo album, and they don't necessarily speak about albums that are that may have escaped your attention, that deserve your attention. So I think in that case, they were not necessarily that huge fans of uh, that album, but you may want to search out, or they may have been forgotten about. And really, they spoke very eloquently about about that album and i'm still waiting on the second episode which has been recorded and, uh, and they're going to be talking about the doors album the soft parade which i got to admit was not one of my favorite doors albums but they spoke so well about uh the judas priest album on the first show that i'm immensely looking forward to hearing what they have to say and they may even convert me who knows so uh, check out the second spin i'm not sure whether they've got itunes presence yet if you do a uh Google search, you'll find them, find their website, and you can download from there. And normally, I don't necessarily do uh, promotions for uh, stores, but I found a really, really great store. If you live in Melbourne, you can find this shop. They're called Off the Hip, and they're a CD store that specialise in garage music and power pop. And anyone who's listened to this show knows I love my power pop. And Mick, who runs that shop, I just met him this week. He just has a terrific store, a lot of local stuff. So all for promoting local power pop and garage bands. But there's a lot of uh, international stuff that you just really need to check out this store. If you live in Melbourne, no, I'm not getting a cut. It's just, I love the store and I love the music that he's promoting. So uh, if you live in Melbourne, go search him out. He's in Flinders Lane just uh, over Queen Street and a little alleyway just off uh, off there and if you live overseas go find his Facebook page if you're a big fan of power pop then I'm sure he goes uh, mail orders so anyway there you go as I said I'm not taking a cut I assure you but I just love power pop and if he's going out to promote it well then uh, I've uh, sort of got to uh, plug 
plug his store. So off the hip, it's called. All right, well, there you go. There's all the Cheerios and, and uh, graft and corruption. Uh, I mean, plugs that we have for this show. So um, thank you very, very much, listeners out there, for uh, tuning in and uh, listening to our um, discussion about freedom. And once again, thank you so much, Scott, and give my regards to Kat. I, I look forward to having you on again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the show. Keep up the great work. Anyway, we'll uh, catch you uh, in October for a little bit of uh, Britpop. Until then, listen to some great music and uh, watch some great films and just generally be nice to each other. All right, cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.